0: Okay, everyone ready? Okay, well, we move into the final session of the day. I'm sure you're all um, getting excited. Um, for some of you, it's just me and these guys standing between you and the first drink of the evening. Um, so we'll, we'll try to be very careful not to overrun. Um, so, uh, some of you, uh, certainly for me, looking at the development of Solvency 2 and the development of SAM over the last sort of five or so years, um, there's been some questions or uncertainty around uh, what appears to be the sort of promotion and elevation of the role of a CRO or the head of the risk function and um, the um, change in the role of the appointed actuary. So as you know in the UK there is no such thing anymore. In South Africa we're sort of moving and changing that role a little bit into the head of the actuarial control function. I think that's what it's called. Um, I'm not sure if it's a half or a hack or something like that. And and, um, so I guess we're being thrust into this world where the role of the appointed actuary is sort of potentially being impinged upon by this person called the CRO. And we've got lots of actuaries getting interested in being CROs. um, And there's obviously studies now that help us to do that. So we thought it would be a useful session to get some real live actuaries and live CROs and some who are both on stage just to give you some sort of idea and insight into their world. So that's certainly what we want to try and do in the next 30 minutes. So just, just by way of introduction, so I'm Andy Rayner. I'm, as it happens, both a sort of appointed actuary and a CRO. Um, I'm joined on stage by, um, at the, on the, in the far corner, uh, Craig Faulkner. Uh, Craig heads up QED actuaries and consultants. He's an approved life statutory actuary, and he's on the Life Assurance Committee of ASA. He's been involved in consulting to a wide range of different life insurers for over 20 years now, young as he looks. Um, and uh, Craig acts as a statutory actuary for a number of South African life insurers. He's also worked for a number of years as statutory actuary to overseas or offshore or out of, Africa, out of South Africa insurers, so Zambia, Namibia, Lesotho, Mauritius, and Kenya. Um, I won't tell you what he does in his spare time. Um, in, in the middle, we then have uh, Jan Lubber. Um, now, Jan is, is not a, an actuary. He's a guest of the Actuarial Society today. So, um, our Jan, CV, Jan loves risk management. Uh, he's been involved with risk management in financial institutions for more than 20 years. And, and he feels, even given that, he still has lots to learn. He started his career at KPMG in Pretoria and then he moved to London uh, in the late 90s and uh, he worked both for KPMG as well as Goldman Sachs uh, while he was there. Uh, When he moved back to South Africa he worked first at Firstrand and then he worked in Barclays Africa as the Chief Risk Officer and within the last um, 18 months or so he's now moved on to MMI Holdings uh, where he is the, um, the CRO. So he is a chartered accountant and he holds an MCOM and an MBA Uh, And one of uh, Jan's um, credits is that in uh, 2006, the Institute of Risk Management of South Africa, ERMSA, awarded him the Risk Manager of the Year Award. Um, So quite an accolade. And uh, I won't tell you what he does in his spare time either. And then uh, Dave Jewell, some of you will know Dave. So David qualified as an actuary in 1997. He's a fellow of the Actual Society of South Africa. He also is a CIRA uh, holder, so well done to David. Uh, He's worked in life insurance, reinsurance, and consulting. Uh, He has a particular interest in quantitative and broader enterprise-wide risk management. He joined Liberty in 2005 and has had a a number of different roles. I think they were trying to find a role for him. Um, And and, uh, he's he's been responsible for the core actuarial team that does the actual evaluation and all the financial reporting. He's um, been heavily involved in the development of economic capital, uh, risk appetite quantification and uh, implementing SAM from an actuarial perspective, so really putting to use those CIRA skills. Uh, During 2014, he was appointed as the Statutory Actuary of Liberty Group Limited, and then more recently, in addition to that, as the Chief Risk Officer. Okay, so there's a a fairly, sorry, by Paul's standards, a long introduction, but I, I thought it was worth giving that detail. So we're going to kick off, I'm hoping that I won't do most of the talking. Oh, the other thing, the other rule is um, I'd really like to get questions from the audience because I kind of know the answers to most of the questions, I think. Um, So it's not for my benefit, it's really for you guys to sort of put the questions that you're interested in. So we'll try and intersperse it with some prepared questions as well as uh, anything from the floor. Okay, so first of all, let's just um, set the scene a little bit um, by looking at... Where does the function of the CRO, or the appointed actuary, or both, if you're both, um, fit into the organization that you work for, or the organizations that you work for? So maybe Jan, we'll start with
1: you. So where where does it fit? What's the reporting line? How do you sit in the organization? Thanks, Andy. Um, I report to Nicholas Kruger, the CEO. And then in our um, organization, the risk structure, we've got a bit of a matrix structure. So we've got uh, heads of risk types, that's in the risk community. Uh, so for each of our risk types, whether that's the insurance risk types or credit or market operational risk and compliance. Uh, and then we also have chief risk officers by segment. So we, at an MMI level, we are um, you know going through a business model change and, uh, in terms of client segmentation. Uh, and for each of those businesses, we have a, a CRO as well. Colin Fensel, who's the um, appointed actuary, he's also in my team. Uh, and we were clearly we were very closely together. But basically, the reporting lines: so Colin reports to me, but he also clearly, from a governance point of view, reports to the chair of the actuarial uh, committee. And I also report, from a governance point of view, to the chair of the board risk capital and compliance committee.
0: And those other CROs are across the group, do they report to
1: you, or I mean, do you set their remuneration? Yes. So. Um, We've had long debates about dotted, um, straight line, you know, curved lines and all that. Uh, I'm less sensitive about what it's called. There's a few things that, that's important for me in terms of that reporting line. So first of all, they are part of the risk XCO. Um, but we agree. So between the segment CEO and myself for that CRO, we agree the, the CRO strategy and objectives, the performance measurements, and then the performance measure and then as well as the remuneration, we agree that.
0: Good, okay, thanks for that Jan. We'll come back to you with a bit more detail on some of that in a minute. Uh, David, do you want to talk about where the role of, maybe given that you've had a recent change in role, where it used to, if there's any changes in the way the CRA reports versus the appointed actuary?
2: Okay, yeah, I mean, I think, I think in many respects where we're on now is actually very similar to, to um, what, what, what Jan describes in that my reporting on is directly into our um, group chief executive, Tabu Bilfi, um, and have a very similar setup from an operating model in the, in the risk environment uh, in terms of having risk top heads reporting to me. Um, I think the key difference is that we're still going through the process of deciding what we have in business units. Um, I'm not keen on people called chief risk officers in business units because I think you'll end up with a conflict between who actually makes the call from a risk perspective. Is it the group risk guys? Or is it those, those folks sitting in, in um, uh, business units? And I think it's difficult to uh, have people who can play at the right kind of level across all the risk types um, in those business units as well as sitting at groups. So that's another reason for my aversion to, to that piece, the art model. But other, other than that, I think we're in a very similar place. Um, we, we, we've been on a bit of a journey to get to, to, to where we are now. Um, uh, I guess a few years back, went through the process of separating out the statutory actuary from the rest of the actuarial function. And that reporting line has kind of moved around, and it ended up um, reporting into the um, FD. Um, from a risk perspective, uh, had 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 folks primarily operational risk focused, looking after things like, I mean, just directly, legal compliance, forensics, um, and the likes. But then, when you start getting into uh, things like insurance risk, now there's a big overlap with what the statutory actually was doing. You start bringing in um, heads of market risk, and and um, uh, credit risk specialists, I mean that, that, that doesn't fit. So I think the I think the, the bringing together of the financial risks and the non-financial risks, more kind of quantifiable and, and more difficult to quantify risks is, is really where the where, where the tension point plays out. And so what, what happened with, with with us is we we had a situation where our FD had the statutory actually the head of market and credit risk reporting to him as well as the head of um, operational risk. I and mean, then you had a bit of duplication that you had in, insurance risk type head um, who was not kind of overlapping with what the statutory actually was doing um, and uh, I mean just recently said hang on I mean let's let's take all the away but not not burden the FD with with, with that in addition to whatever uh, all, all the rest of the stuff that he's doing and and uh, okay goodness interesting right.
0: Craig I mean okay. I, I guess you're gonna it's a little bit different for you because you're not employed by an insurance company but again sort of just in terms of where the role fits and who it reports to in your
3: experience across the wide range of clients you've worked with. Uh, yeah, Thanks Andy. Um, obviously because we're consulting uh, the insurance companies that we consult to um, would normally use us uh, for three areas. Either they'd outsource the entire um, actual control function or if they have an actual team they would outsource just the head uh, of the actual control function which is Uh, sort of the statutory role, or uh, if they have a strong actuarial team and a head, then they would normally outsource certain aspects of uh, what we call the actuarial uh, processes, for example, the embedded value, if there's an incentive scheme that's related to it and they wanted some peer review independence. So generally, um, in our role, as let's say the appointed actuary, in those three scenarios, we would report directly to the board, or the FD of the insurer, or the MD, who would probably be a member of the board. So we'd have a direct reporting line to the, to the board effectively, and we'd be governed by an outsourcing agreement, Directive 159. Um, normally, for those companies, it would vary as well where the CRO would fit. Um, typically, the CRO would report to the FD or and also have a direct line to the board. But we'd have very, um, maybe from, the CRO would normally not be outsourced either. So the lines are quite clear in terms of we do um, you know, actuarial uh, work and the CROs generally have a, there's, there's, a there's, there's almost a very clear line. In my experience, I know that um, you know, uh, there may be blurred lines and for me it, it's normally quite clear and there isn't much conflict.
0: Mm-hmm. So in, sorry, while, while you've got the microphone, Craig. So presumably a lot of the clients that you worked with though, either in the past didn't have such a thing as a CRO or maybe even now don't. Mm-hmm. I mean, are you seeing, I mean, how is that dealt with in those companies and are you seeing any changes there?
3: Uh, Yeah, um, Andy, obviously the bigger players would have a CRO, um, but some of the smaller ones, uh, the FD would be given additional responsibilities, for example, uh, maybe appoint a risk manager, and uh, the CRO function would be via, for example, the FD, and I think in terms of proportionality and things like that, it may still be acceptable, although we still have to wait and see. Okay. So, so, that, so, that's sort of, my takeaway from that
0: part of the discussion is we're putting FDS out of work and scoping down their roles, um, but but we are seeing these professional CROs have actuaries reporting to them, and maybe on that um, sort of note, maybe back to you, Jan. So. In your team, so to to fulfill the CRO role, what sort of range of skills
1: and experts do you have available to you? Um, So I think pretty much um, the same as as David. I mean, we also managed a couple of years ago the kind of operational risk separately from the credit and market risk and and the insurance risks. That's why we decided a couple of years ago to really uh, bring them together as one risk community. Um, So clearly, you know, there's actuarial skills. um, And in that team, purely just because uh, that's where the the skills are, we cover insurance risk, but we also cover things like overarching risk appetite project or process, um, also stress testing and the coordination around that. Uh, And even our Ulshar process actually um, we've now put in that space because that's, that's for us the best place to put it in terms of skills. From a credit point of view and market risk point of view, there's, there's, we've centralized um, the, the credit and market on our balance sheet management side. Um, so we have credit specialists, a, a team of credit specialists, uh, as well as market risk managers and then clearly we have operational risk managers uh, both at group level and, and across the organization. Maybe just a point of, of note on that. I mean, when, when we decided to create what we call the risk community, um, there were two major changes. It was to get away from the silo view per risk type that, that we've explained now. And then it was also to actually, and, and I think this is horses for courses, different cultures and different organizations, is to get away from a traditional kind of group versus division. Um, so for us the whole risk community is part of second line of defense, it depends on how you define it, where your, your lines are, um, but the whole risk community really is part of the second line of defense um, and the whole aspect around joint accountability uh, I think is very important. So for example a segment CRO would rely on the risk type heads for specialist risk input but that CRO would know a lot more probably around that business line than the specialist risk type heads. Um, so I think that's the way in which we, we look at the skill set.
0: Okay, David, do you want maybe give a bit
2: more detail around the skill sets under your control? Yeah. I mean, I think again, it's, there's a lot of similarity. Um, I mean, in, in much the same way, we have created a centralised unit that looks after market credit liquidity risk. So, so we've got a team of um, market risk professionals, typically with uh, kind of mathematical type backgrounds, um, and typically coming out of the banking um, sector. Um, uh, similarly, on the credit side, very, very experienced credit risk professionals and those you will find very good people in the banking sector. Um, and then uh, uh, I've got lawyers, I've got um, an industrial engineer um, and a bunch of actuaries um, uh, to to make sure that we can cover the broader operational risks and, uh, and, and I mean, stuff like you do in advance.
0: Craig, I won't ask you what you've got in your team, but I, well, I will, go on. So, in your team, do you have non actuaries who help you with clients that, that aren't experts in, you know, to the sort of the CRO type uh, risks?
3: Yeah, we've got a, we've had to employ a risk management actuary. Um, and his first thing he said is that uh, he tries not to think like an actuary. So we do have interesting uh, discussions with him. But it is, it is useful to, um, to have different uh, you know, skills. I don't think actuaries can do everything. I think there's a lot we can learn from um, the risk managers and the other, the other risks. In terms of the clients, uh, you know, they are struggling with, uh, with probably more the, um, the CRO type uh, wider um, expertise. So they would either um, look at recruiting or you know, specialists that David mentioned. Or otherwise, I mean, bearing in mind that they are the smaller to medium-sized insurers. They don't normally have in-house technical expertise, so they would generally look to you know, outsource that or, or use consultants. And obviously, the consultants then need to make sure they have those skills available and uh, work closely with, with your own um, uh, risk management specialists in-house that you have uh, as a consultant.
0: Thanks. Um, I hope you're building up some questions because my list is running down. Um, yeah, and I wanted to sort of move on to conflict or potential differences of opinion between the actuaries and the, who assume they know everything about life insurance company risk and people like you who are risk experts I and mean, you've got a lot of experience in that. I mean, how, where do you see those conflicts arising and, and um, how do you deal with them, I guess, other than the fact that they the actually report to you, so you just tell him that
1: he's wrong. So. <laughs> It does help. No, no, no. Um, Colin and I have the conversation the whole time about whether actuaries can be wrong or not. Um, and I do say that there are some black swan events, but you know, let's not go there. Um, you know, before the, um, the session we were talking, and um, you know, the question came up, why did MMI decide to, to appoint a, a CRO that's not an actuary? Um, and, and you know, I'm a very, very much an ex-accountant. You know, I, I don't know anything about if really, uh, you know, last the last standard I, I wrote my exam on was AC118, which is construction contracts, uh, which no longer exist. But then um, Edwin suggested that um, it was because it was too difficult for actuaries, uh, which I completely obviously disagree with. Uh, but I think in terms of the, the tension, I, I suppose one of the, the benefits for me, and, and again, it's, 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 it's. Um, you know, it'll be different for different organizations. I've been there 18 months. I'll use the I'm new card for another five years or so. So I'm luckily, I've got a thick skin and I love my job. So I don't mind asking stupid questions. Um, and luckily, you know, in, in our team um, and in that actuarial team led by Colin, Um, There are some actuaries that can explain really technical um, concepts very practically and very well and I think that also helps us to prepare for things like exco discussions and then board discussions when when I can ask those silly questions and maybe come from a non-actuarial background so that's kind of how we, we deal with that. Um, you know, Colin has got a – the statutory has got a fiduciary duty a separate legal requirement, you know, and, and I don't sign off on valuation reports and things like that really. Um, so I suppose, I mean, we can – we do have differences of opinion on certain things. Uh, for some reason, you know, uh, actuaries don't really like this whole combined assurance concept, for example, from King 3, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll get you guys there. Um, but, I mean, we, we go through our normal risk ex process, etc. We haven't been in a situation where, you know, there were major technical differences. I also think it's not just down to one person. There's a whole actuarial fraternity, you know, in the organisation. Um, and, and it really is through through the discussions. And it's also, also, yes, we've got our governance processes, which is very, very important. But it's in terms of the internal network that we have and, and that informal discussions, really, uh, that, that we have around issues and making sure we get the right input from everyone in the organisation. Okay. Thanks,
0: well, David. I guess yeah, it's a little bit different question for you, but I mean, what you could answer that question as well. But so, why did Liberty put these two roles together? Is it because you're such an outstanding candidate that there was no other
2: choice? <laughs> <laughs> um, sure. Okay. I, I think I think the. I mean, maybe just to build on, on what, what Jan said first before I get to that one. The. Um, uh, To my mind, I mean, the conflicts arise typically where people don't understand each other. And if we just keep, I mean, mean, firstly from a language perspective, but also just in terms of worldview and the kind of cloth that we cut from. I mean, that's, uh, so so we just miss each other. Um, And and I think we need to guard against that. And then then the other thing that I think we need to be very conscious of as we all work our way through this change is that um, a lot of conflict, because essentially we're talking about the stuff of operating models. A lot of conflict arises out of lack of role clarity or where you actually set people up to have overlap involved. Um, and so what we're trying to do is be very conscious about that, where, where that's likely to happen. So actually taking the areas in which the, the actuaries have played a dominant role um, and where now the legislation either isn't prescriptive in terms of who's going to do that mm-hmm. going forward, or it's actually quite consciously saying the risk community is going to take ownership of the risk model, for example. Um, and walking through a process with the board and then all the folks involved to actually reset the scene in terms of what it is that, that, that we need to do. And I think, I think that's really important, particularly when you start looking at things like um, customer advocacy, who's going to sign with products from a risk perspective, uh, who's actually going to uh, provide assurance to the board around financial assignment, whatever the concept is that, that um, replaces it. In terms of us um, uh, bringing it together at, at Liberty, I think it's. I mean, it just. I guess, in a sense, got to a point where it just kind of looked inevitable because there is just so much overlap between what the statutory actually does at the moment and what SAM is requiring the chief risk officer to do. Um, and uh, I mean, that 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 one way or another, the two things um, had to come together. Um, and, I mean, then I guess you start looking around saying, okay, I mean, who's the person that can do this job um, uh, now? And, and, I mean, I guess we're going through a, a massive change and big revision of operating model. And, um, yep, and it, it, it felt for me. But, uh, so, so, so I'd, I would expect that, I mean, all of the, the big insurance groups, all the insurance groups out there are going to be going through asking exactly the same um, kind of questions, and one way or another, you're going to need to construct an operating model where you have very close collaboration between, um, I guess, all of the control functions, but, yeah. but I'd say particularly the the natural um, control function, the risk function, because, I mean, uh, they, they, they kind of joined at the hip. So, I mean, I'd, I'd be surprised if you see a lot of divergence in the, in the operating model that it makes. Okay. So, Craig, I mean, just
0: tailoring that again to your situation, I guess, which is, you know... <laughs> Where you are outsourced, and I guess generally the CRO role or the head of risk is not um, for your clients. So, how do you deal with with the conflicts that arise there?
3: Yeah, Andy, I think generally um, anything sort of technical, actuarial, whether it's ALM or capital modeling or reserving or SCR. Um, normally, because the, a lot of the clients don't have a lot of those skills in house, they would normally go along with um, with the statutory actuary, and work. We work closely with the with the risk management actuary. Where where our risk management actuary is involved, uh, he does actually come up with uh, a few things, uh, sort of additional risks, um, but he doesn't. He doesn't tend to be involved in the quantification of those risks. He'll just point them out and say, "Have you thought of this?" And then normally it'll go back to the actuarial side to quantify the risk. So there's a there's still that sort of separation between the CRO um, almost identifying the risk in this case, and then the, the actuarial team will then quantify and put a number and decide how to model it. For example, you know the, the impact of RDR. You know the he he'll point that out, and then we'll have to come up with a way to to bring that impact into the also, for example. So, so there's a, I think there, isn't, there hasn't been conflict yet in where I've been involved, so it's, uh, we'll wait and see if it happens. But I agree with everything, David, and said we have to work closely together because if, if uh, our risk management actually does a report on risk management, we do our valuation report, sometimes he may say things that are inconsistent with, um, you know, with what we've done, so you, you, know, you really need to talk to each other. So, so while you've got my last question from me and then I want to go to the
0: floor. So um, so for these two guys, who does the AUSA might be quite an easy question to answer. So I guess Dave does his and I guess Jan does his with close support from Colin. And with your client base, who's doing the Orsa?
3: Uh I think we probably do, depends on the clients, but uh, you know the smaller ones we would tend to do most of the Orsa, but uh, but work closely with the our risk management actually who would then be getting information on risk appetites and uh, policies etc from the the relevant people at the, uh, at the insurer just to make sure it all hangs together so it is working together with whatever risk management team there is there but all the quantification you know the projections and the stress tests etc would be done by the actuarial uh, side and then uh, as, a, as we said earlier you need to obviously involve the insurance companies' risk management uh, that's there, and uh, and then where, where our risk management actually get involved is also assisting those companies in coming up with where they are thin on the on the risk management side with stresses and other risks that they may not have thought of, or um, and helping them to put it. But but I think the other side of it is the smaller companies. There's that as I said, that proportionality uh, principle. Um, and yeah, probably not as exhaustive uh, and also as you would find from these two insurers mm-hmm. on my left mm-hmm. here. Okay, thanks for that, Craig. I want to, I wanted to have three or
0: four questions from the floor, if we can, please. Is there anyone, anyone that would like to ask a question? Gary.
1: Now, my question was around incentives. So, what is your, are, you, are your incentives based on the overall incentives that the management and the company or do you have a completely different incentive scheme
0: Craig I guess you
2: can't
1: answer that one <laughs> um,
2: so so I guess where, where we are at the moment the I mean there's there's reasonably close alignment between what drives my incentives and what drives the incentives of the rest of the management team and that there's a a KPI um, component and a financial performance component but the weighting um, is very different compared to the rest of the management team um, and then I think importantly certainly a conversation I'm going to look to drive um, is that I believe um, uh, call it second line of defence type functions are more appropriately remunerated through longer term incentives so I mean to, to my mind the um, the best type of incentive would for example be um, uh, shares with the vesting period and then a, a significantly extended no sell period so that you're getting uh, you're getting a bunch of folks thinking truly truly um long term about what they what they're doing because I think I think long term sustainability is fundamental to what um we as a broader risk community including the appointed actuary and the statutory action and that
1: need to bring to the party. Um, from our side, I mean clearly I won't comment on the level, you know, offense. Of <laughs> <laughs> um but similar. Uh, I, I think the one thing is what what we have done is we we've tried to for second line of defense have less variable uh, and, and a bigger proportion fixed. Uh, and then also from a long term point of view um, the the retention versus uh, performance based uh, for me is and, and the, the heads of the, the various risk types etc uh, is different uh, is, is, is more uh, leaning towards um, uh, retention rather than performance based performance on the on the company company performance itself so so there's certainly both from a variable versus fixed on an annual basis as well as then the long term and um, there's there's more certainty around that which I think is right
0: okay, thank you I'm looking for the next question there's
1: one in the
3: Um, I think most of you mentioned the appreciation for other specialists in what you're doing and I was just wondering is that appreciation does that go both ways do they (laughs) like so in terms of maybe in the banking industry do they see space for actuaries to become CROs there or is the is the other old
1: reversed as well? Um, maybe I can um, comment on, on some experience I had. In, at both the banks I, I was at, um, we had a number of actuaries, specifically in the credit risk space, um, specifically mostly in retail credit, but even in, in wholesale credit we also had. Uh, and in fact, um, you know, some of them were very, very senior. So there's, there's no reason why an actuary can't be the CRO of a bank, clearly. Um, and, and, in fact, I think banks more and more um, uh, appoint actuaries. And not only, I think, you know, a lot started in the kind of model validation space, in fact, um, but then uh, also in terms of the the, the, the pricing um, and, and product design, uh, a lot of actuaries are working in, in the banking space at the moment. I mean, to, to add
2: to that, I guess I get to see quite a lot of...
1: Um, Uh,
2: the folks at our parent company, Standard Bank, and um, um, I mean they certainly do employ actuaries. I think the difference is that actuaries operating in a banking environment when you're, um, you've got skills but um, I mean you're in a much more competitive environment. I think think some of us in life insurance have grown up in a slightly protected environment. where we're expecting progression, we're expecting to move up through the organization because we're an actuary. I mean, that might be why you get the job initially. But if, 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 if you join a bank to progress, you're going to have to be able to do other stuff and, and uh, I mean, uh, much broader um, skill set required to actually move up through the ranks. So I don't know if, I mean, I don't know if that's helping answer the question. Um, I mean, if, if, if anything, I think... I think to kind of talk to the other professionals in a life insurance environment. I think they're kind of scary. Um, I mean, okay, I can't speak for Jan, but but I mean, it's it's quite a daunting thing coming into a life insurance um, in, environment. Uh, kind of looking at at various folks out of the banking community who've joined Liberty. Um, I mean the. the, the the thing is different. I mean, it's different to what they know. They might have been the gods of the environment they operated in, and now there's a whole lot of stuff that they've got to get their heads around, and a lot of stuff that's, that I think we've made much more complex than we than we need to, and that's, that puts up barriers to them actually being able to participate, and then we talk a different language to what most of the rest of the world talks, and um, so, so I, I, I think we need to be conscious of that because I think there will be much stronger organizations that we can actually leverage off, off that diversity of skill sets and contribution that, that these various other professionals can make.
0: Okay, thank you. Just I'm going to take one last question, Peter, and then we, so we are going to overrun a little bit but I think we've pulled it back nicely. So.
1: I'd like to ask a question along a similar line. Is there anything um, in the actuarial training mindset, the type of person who's uh, sort of gets into the actual space that equips them to be a risk officer or a chief risk officer in a non-financial services space? Or are we? Is, is, there, is there something in the mindset that helps us and the type of people that go into the profession that helps us in, in that space? Or are we fundamentally locked into only being in insurance companies and maybe banks if we're lucky?
0: Who fancies that one?
1: No. I don't know about the banks if we're lucky, if you're lucky, or rather. Um, but look, it's an interesting question. I think um, generally, uh, and this is not because I'm, I'm, you know, kind of, I suppose now almost the only non-actuary left in the room, uh, because this has deserted me. Um, so it's not just because of that. But when an actuary, as uh, what, a, what, a personal, unofficial, you know, experience. When an actuary sees the bigger picture and can understand business and understand people and processes, they kick the butt of any other profession. I think personally, um, you know, not, um, most actuaries clearly are honestly, brain the size of the planet, that kind of, that stick it to the game, you know, that that, that happens anyway. But when an actually has got a wider a view, you know, can see the business strategy, be practical around things, can explain things well, and really understand people, um, you know, honestly, uh, you know, honestly, the world is, is, is your oyster. Uh, I, I spoke to, to a colleague of mine, and, and the, uh, his, his son is in, in the trick, and he said, you know, he's... he's he wants to choose between um, CA or, or being an actuary. Um, and I said, well, if you're clever enough to become an actuary, you definitely must become an actuary. Because I do think, yes, there's a, I suppose there's a, a very close-knit community. I see all you guys almost know each other, so that was interesting. Um, but um, apart from the fact that there's not that many of you around, um, I really do think that it places you in a great position um, and that doesn't mean if you want to specialise in something that's bad. That's not bad at all. I mean, we definitely need, need that as well. But just in terms of if there's an actuary with a broader vision and really can work with people and process as well, uh, honestly, I think, you know, very, very well placed to, to take any position in any company. And you can just look at, well, specifically in MMI now, you know, the, the, on, on the Exco, the actuaries that sit on Exco, for example, those are the type of people, you know, I'm talking about. And you can see that they are strategically exceptionally strong.
0: Yeah, and you know how to work a crowd, huh? <laughs> so Craig, this is, Craig, I just want you to answer that question in terms of, do, have you seen or do you see, you know, you, do you get inquiries about, you know, you're an actually come and help me in my non-actuarial business uh, in terms of identifying risk and quantifying
1: it?
3: Uh, Yeah, not not that often actually, Andy. Um, But I must just one comment on our risk management. Actually, he I I made the comment earlier that he tries not to think like an actuary, and he does ERM work for um, non-insurance. You know, any any corporate. It's the same principles, and he does have a much more um, sort of questioning and uh, different way of thinking, which um, which I quite appreciate because he says that actuaries do have a very traditional. You know, we like to do things how we, we've we, how we studied and how we've trained. And I think probably the, I don't know if it's the serial or it's just him, but he seems to have a, a different way of thinking and, and a, a broader way of thinking. But he doesn't like getting into detail. But, but you know, he'll point out risks and then, and then uh, make a good point to, to look more closely at them. So probably just that questioning um, you know, sort of mind and, and uh, you know, having a broader way of looking at things. David, I'll give you the last word, and I've got one very quick question for each of you.
2: I'm not sure that I can add much to what, to what Jan said. I mean, I think, I think it's, um, in, a, in a way, I mean, it's, it's kind of back to left brain, right brain sort of stuff, that, that our whole training, um, university, everything kind of sets us up to be these left brain folks that take problems, rationalise them, crunch them, put them in a box, label them, put a number on them, and, 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 and that's the end of it, but that's not how the world works. Um, and so I think we really need to focus on the the process, the people, the governance the uh, interpersonal interactions I mean all, which is the mess that, that is the world around us um, uh, and, and and that's that's where a lot of the, the the big risks are And maybe to bring it straight back to to, to risk management and interaction of the actuarial function and um, operating models and the like I mean if we, if we kind of take uh, financial risk and say so that's good left-brain stuff. That's classically where actuaries are ideally positioned to play. Um, non-financial risk, that's kind of more right-brain sort of stuff. That's culture and people and, and stuff like that. Um, and, and and being able to bridge across the two, um, I mean, I think, I think that's what we as actuaries need to try and build. Because fundamentally, what's going to play out in terms of who ends up as the CRO is that is that you can take risk and you can chop it up into pieces and someone can go away and do the non-financial uh, piece and someone can do the, the financial piece, but at the end of the day, there's the risk that stuff falls between those two and someone needs to bring it all together. Um, and I mean, I think as, as evidence on the stage, I mean, it could, be, it could be an actuary, it could be someone who's not an actuary. Um, so, okay. and, and, and it's about building the skill skills still to bridge. Okay, thank you.
0: Um, just, I would just, I know we're overrunning, but one quick indulgence. So guys, <coughs> when you're pulling together your ORSA reports, just, just you're going to give me a, this is a one word, two word answer, okay? So what percentage of your ORSA report is actuarially numbery stuff and how much of it is qualitative
3: analysis of risk? Craig? I'd say uh, 80% is uh, actuarial numbers. Okay.
0: Stuff. Okay. Jan,
1: um, got, uh, well, being the non-quantitative person, I won't give you a quantitative answer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just one quick thing. I think one thing. One one place where the the FSB has learned from the Saab, when the Saab, you know, uh, regulated from from a Basel two point of view. The first ICAPs were very much you know on the side big documents didn't you know it was just a kind of a theoretical thing more even for you know for a number of years worked on that i think the one thing that the, the fsb is is clear on is it must be business as usual it must be part of what you do and a reflection of what you do it can't be something else Therefore, I think you know, it's very, very important to make sure we capture the key themes in there. Very difficult to say what percentage, yes, stress testing will be in there, forward-looking projections, all those things will be in there. I think those things are very important. For me, more important is what we actually do with that from a qualitative point of view.
2: David? I'll give you a, a quantitative answer. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd probably guess at uh, maybe a third being the quantitative stuff two thirds being the, the qualitative. Okay, that's interesting
0: food for thought. Okay, can we thank the panel for their time? <clears throat>